Having kids is awesome, but raising them is challenging and filled with ups and downs. Sometimes the downs threaten to drown out the ups. In short, having kids is risky. We get it. We're parents too. But we're also pediatric emergency doctors. We have unique insight into risks and how to keep them in perspective. Welcome to Cloudy with a Risk of Children. Join Dr. Ed, that's me, and my co-host, Dr. Phil, as we explore the challenges and the fun of raising healthy children. So, Phil, at the end of our last episode, we hadn't settled on a topic for today. We suggested we would cover maybe trampolines or pit bulls or circumcision, but we're not going to do any of that. Uh, we'll get to those topics for sure, but that's not our focus today. Today, we're going to talk about money and specifically how to endow our kids with financial literacy, which might seem like an odd topic for a show like ours on raising healthy kids, but it is actually fairly tightly linked uh, to health, isn't it, Phil? Absolutely. If we can teach our kids how to manage their money, it doesn't always necessarily mean investing or this, just staying within your means, basic rules, things like that, and take care of your money, you are inadvertently, directly taking care of your health. You have, from what I know of you, Phil, you actually do have a bit of an interest in money as a tool, and you've tried to use it, I think, in your own life and your own profession and raising your own kids. Is, is there a couple of like what, are, what are tools that you've used uh, to try to teach your own children about these sorts of things and, or books that you would recommend? Yeah, so, yeah. And, and, and I think it's, I guess there's kind of a multi-pronged approach to it. I, I love the idea of having mentors. So who are people who, who do those things and have a proven track record at doing them? One mistake maybe doctors make, because we learn lots from books, is read lots of books. And there's lots of great books out there that I've used but often easier written than done. Yeah, and so sure. don't mistake that just you could read a book, but I think that's a good starting point. Yeah, um, yeah lots. And I am yeah, very interested in different ways to use money as a tool, use money to try and get your money working for you, not for the per unit work in, for per unit money out. People that make money have passive income. And so that's always been super interesting to me to try and figure that out. And it's not easy and you're going to get lots of hard lessons. Again, back to my point about having mentors and people who have already done it and proven track record, there's lots of people out there who are very successful at finding ways to make money. And I think one issue I consistently see with highly trained people is they think if they're really good at one thing, they must be really good at everything. Right. And it's not true. You think all the time we put in as doctors, reading, practicing, having mentors, doing all those things, and then we think we can step out read some books, instantly apply it, and we'll be, you're not an expert. Expert takes time, takes mentors, takes reading, takes yeah. a lot of mistakes, yeah. sometimes fatal money mistakes, where you lose so much money, you, you can barely recover. And then a lot of the best people in the world at this have done that, rallied and come back again. They are experts. Yeah. So few, it's really hard to be an expert in multiple things. Yeah, I like to joke sometimes, Phil, that uh, I fancy myself to be like Winston Churchill. We all know who Winston Churchill is. And I don't mean to say that I look like Winston Churchill, uh, at least from what I know how Winston Churchill looked, I, I'm perhaps not quite as portly. And I don't like to chomp on cigars. And I'm not a particularly great leader. 
But Winston Churchill, a lot of people don't know this about him, he was famously or infamously really poor with money. Since we're doctors, and so by definition, therefore, perhaps people shouldn't really listen to you and I on this issue, we decided to bring on a person who does know quite a bit about this sort of thing, a best-selling author named Robin Tobe, who wrote a book called The Wisest Investment. And she's going to come on today to share with us some strategies with regard to how to set our kids up for success with regard to financial tools. And so we'll cover things like uh, healthy money habits for parents as well as for kids, the importance of parents modeling good financial behavior, the basic pillars of financial literacy, the state of financial education in schools, strategies for every stage of life, the usefulness of games in teaching our kids about money, and the importance of sharing money as kids earn as they go along. So we'll be back with that interview. Welcome to the podcast, Robin. Thank you. I'm really quite honored that you would join our humble little startup podcast uh, of our own. I know you've done a lot of these in various places and locations for other people. And so thank you so much for joining us. Tell me, uh, for our audience, sure. Um, how did you get to be where you are? You're a chartered professional accountant by training. Mm-hmm. My kind of uh, little bit of research in your background suggests you've traveled a few different roads as well uh, to get to mm-hmm. where you are today, where you are, you know, the person that you are, best-selling author, sought-after speaker on all things financial with regard to setting up our kids for success. So just tell me briefly how you got here. Yes, happy to. So I am an accountant by training, and my career started off fairly traditionally. I, I worked at two of the biggest accounting firms, KPMG and Ernst & Young, and I was in tax. Uh, that was kind of my last position within public accounting was in tax. And then I decided that I wanted to totally do something different. I left and went to work for one of the firm's clients that was doing real estate syndication. So I was their VP finance. And that was for a couple of years. And then um, I left and I went and worked at Citibank Canada in derivatives marketing, which was a complete 180 from what I had been doing. It really didn't require any accounting background. But obviously, it's all about finance, and uh, you know that required a lot of learning on the job. But today, as you mentioned, I'm a, a speaker and an author, and my focus is raising responsible, independent, money-smart kids. And that really came out of the 2008 global financial crisis. There was a lot more awareness of the importance of being financially literate. And having the knowledge, skills, and confidence to make responsible financial decisions throughout your life. So I end up the the first version of this book, which I think you may have seen, was um, published by CPA Canada, the governing body of accountants in Canada. That's in fact how I first came across your name. I was sitting in my own accountant's office doing Mm -hmm. my year-end taxes. One of the two certainties in life, right? The uh, what's what's the old phrase? Yeah. There's two certainties in life: death and taxes. So I this this is where I first saw your name on that book, which I think you authored more than ten years ago. Called what's it called? That's I have right. it here: A Parent's Guide to Raising Money Smart Kids. That's the original book that you yes. wrote. Yes, that's right. And this is this the wisest investment is an update to that book, and the update was for a digital post pandemic world because 
obviously so much has changed. Yeah. So yeah, that's what, that's really what I've been doing for the last 10, 11 years. And I also like to tell people that are listening that I have two kids myself. So my kids are now in their twenties, uh, in their mid to late twenties, but this was always something that I felt was really for their, you know, futures to, so, to have so these you, kinds of money skills. For sure. So you, so you have two kids that both of whom, uh, have successfully, what's the word launched? They have, and uh, like they both live independently. They're both pursuing their own, you know, careers and interests, and they both have a very good um, sense of how to manage their day to day finances. Not that it's easy; it's never easy, yeah. but they are financially literate for sure. Uh, my daughter works in in finance. She's also a CPA. Um, my son is not, but they both, you know, I made sure that I prioritized that they both again, had the knowledge, skills, and confidence, which is really the definition of financial literacy, to be able to be independent. Right. And so that really cuts to the core of why we wanted to have you on our show, uh, because we recognize that there's a fairly decent connection, obviously, between Mm -hmm. financial literacy and, you know, if you define success in life, you know, one of the metrics of success in life is good health, obviously, which is the Right. Purpose of our show, trying to teach parents how to raise healthy kids and trying to help parents properly calibrate, you know, the challenges around raising kids and giving them the tools that they can use to make those things happen. And what we Mm -hmm. all want as parents ourselves, I, too, have four children. My kids are they're about to all have birthdays in a minute. So they'll be (laughs) 19, 17, 15 and 12, uh, three girls and a boy. So we are in the thick of it. Um, and mm-hmm. we and we like you, um, you know, when when uh, we worry about our kids, because we all do to some degree, are they going to be able to support themselves? We know they're going to have challenges. That's part of life. The question is, how do we equip them for the challenges that come? And you can probably speak to this, Robin, with regard to the mm-hmm. connection between understanding money as a tool and how to use it and determinants of health. In the long term. Yeah. Because in fact, one of the consequences if we don't teach our kids about money is money stress. And a lot of parents, you know, if if they weren't taught well or they've struggled, you know, you know what that means in your life. And there's research that shows that more than half of Canadians have lost sleep over money worries. But more significantly, financial worries can lead to physical health problems like high blood pressure, heart disease, and mental health challenges like depression and anxiety. And then it becomes a bit of a vicious cycle because if you you have financial stress and worries and your health suffers, and if your health suffers, you've got additional costs. You may have to miss work. You you know, you may have, if you don't have insurance, you've got actual out-of-pocket costs. And then it becomes a vicious cycle. And then um, I don't know if you are aware of this, but Stress and anxiety can even make you more vulnerable to fraud. So there's just so many connections between physical health and financial health. Yeah, for sure. You know, one of the one of the phrases that we use on our show, it's actually embedded in the outro. And this is the phrase uh, that we've coined. Kids are like boomerangs. They're fun to mm-hmm. hold, but they're meant to fly. And we use that phrase with regard mm-hmm. to trying to encourage parents that Ultimately, once you've raised your children and hopefully equipped them with the tools to succeed in life, 
that you got to let them go and let them navigate the world on their own because you they're meant for you to let them go. And then I, I kind of made the joke at one point that I can't remember one of our episodes that, but you know, that doesn't mean that we want them to come home to like a boomerang to live in our basement. I know. But, I, but unfortunately that's increasing what's happening with a lot of our young adults. And if you don't mind, you know, you have a, I think it's early on in your book, you have a, you, you put a little vignette there. I don't know if it's a, if it's a conglomerate or based on a real vignette or not, but I'll just quote it. It goes like this. A neighbor has a 26-year-old daughter who lives at home with her parents. She only has a part-time job working in retail. She Ubers everywhere rather than take public transit, goes out for brunch every weekend, buys takeout food regularly for dinner, and before the pandemic hit, had just come home from a week's vacation in Mexico. She has no savings at all, no RRSP, no TFSA, not even a basic savings account. And now she doesn't have a job. The worst part is she could care less about learning about finances. She's more concerned about how many followers she has on Instagram. Her parents bemoan the fact that they did not take the time to teach their daughter good money management skills and habits when she was younger. And they're distressed by the fact that she doesn't seem to share any of their values and seems to take so much for granted. It's really strained their relationship with her. Fair to say, Robin, that cuts pretty close to the core for many parents these days. I think it is a relatable story. And I hope that many of the little vignettes that are in the book, like italicized quotes from parents, I mean, the idea of putting them in to make relatable, like you are not in this alone. A lot of parents struggle with this. A lot of parents are facing really similar challenges with their kids, especially in the age of social media. So um, it is really important that they have this basic knowledge because, you know, in addition to the the consequences that we just talked about of money, stress and physical and mental health, you want to establish good habits at an early age because habits are like well-traveled pathways. They create grooves in the mind that rarely disappear completely. Like you probably understand the science of this better than me, but there's neural pathways So you want to establish these good habits early rather than trying to rewire bad habits later. Yeah, and that's one of the core themes of your book is the um, you spend some time at the outset of the book. It's very well laid out, by the way. But the foundation of the book at the beginning is for us as parents first to take a good, Mm -hmm. hard, clinical, if you'll forgive me using that word, a clinical look at our own situation. (laughs) Yeah. and, And our own values and how we portray them to our kids. And then uh, if memory serves, I think you have 11 basic habits that you yes, recommend healthy, we cult- habits. If healthy habits that we cultivate ourselves, you know, and it put me in mind of, uh, you know, one of my favorite books is a book that you probably know of by Charles Duhigg, I think is how you pronounce yeah. his last name, The, the Power Duhigg, of Habits. Yeah. And such a great book also with regard to teaching people, if you have habits, as we all do, that are maybe not so positive, that the best way to root out those habits is to replace them with a better one. Yeah, he and, talks about those keystone habits. And and one of the things I, I also want to stress here for uh, our audience is that it can be a bit discouraging for parents who listen to seasoned veterans and people who uh, are in the know like yourselves with all these great tools and pieces of advice. And they'll read your book and they'll see it's laid out as it is. You know, you've done a great job, as I said, with the foundation, looking at ourselves first and then 
um, strategies for the different age categories. Uh, I think it's five to eight mm-hmm. preteen teenagers and then the emerging adults. Yes. And, and so that, that's great. However, you know, there will be parents who will pick up your book or look at similar advice and their kids are already 12 or 16 or already in university mm-hmm. and they will feel like, darn, I should have done that. And my point here is that's pointless. You know, and yeah, and that expression is like the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago, but the second best time is now. And I, right. I get that question from parents, which is, you know, my kids are already teens. Is it too late? So absolutely not. It's not too late. Ideally, you start when they're young and you build on what you're teaching when we talk about what the specifics are in a minute. But if you haven't started, don't let that deter you jump in at that age category, like don't start teaching a teenager things you would have taught them when they were, you know, five to eight, you have to make sure the information you share is age appropriate, or you'll just lose them. But don't let that deter you definitely just start today. One of the key questions, I guess, is, you know, we, I think we understand intuitively, really, how important it is, you know, to use your word, the title of your book, the wisest investment, we understand how important it is to teach our kids about money, how it's a tool, how it should be used, how important it is not to buy happiness, but as a as a tool to help realize mm-hmm. quality of life in the long term. So the question is, therefore, why do so many parents not talk to their kids about money? Yeah, well, there's a bunch of reasons. So CPA Canada, we talked about, published the book originally. They did research and that which found that 78% of parents who tried to teach their kids about money but two thirds didn't feel they'd been very successful at it. So I think what the big challenges are knowledge and time. So feeling like you don't have time to talk to your kids or you don't know just how to build it into your life. So on the knowledge piece, like I understand I'm lucky because I have a financial background. My husband has one. So we've always been comfortable talking to our kids about money, but people who don't, like you were saying, you know, you spent your whole career in the sciences and, you know, you might not have that same grounding. And if parents feel they're not good with money themselves, they're not knowledgeable, they're going to just avoid the topic altogether, especially because, you know, you've got four kids, you know how busy it is to run a household and family life, etc. I think too often we shrink back from wanting to teach our kids because we think, well, I've got nothing to teach them. I don't know this stuff myself, right? Yeah, I know. So first of all, I mean, uh, I think one of the things like I try to encourage parents who feel like they're not as knowledgeable as they would like to be is um, that you and your kids can learn together. So the first step to that is to try and get your own financial house in order so you can lead by example and be a good financial role model because that is probably your best, the behavior that you model is probably your best and easiest teaching tool in a way, because you don't need to set aside any special time for that. But your kids are watching and listening and learning from you. And that's where the 11 healthy habits of financial management come in, because those are things that you can do to get your own financial house in order and that your kids will pick up on and that you can model for them. Yeah. So, you know, living within your means, paying yourself first, knowing the difference between good debt and bad debt. Those are just a few examples. Yeah, there was another great quote in your book from Michael Lewis, an author that I love, 
You know, he wrote Me too, uh, my favorite nonfiction author. He wrote that baseball book, uh, Moneyball, and, uh, you know, of yeah. course, did the big short and Liar's Poker. He even wrote a book, by the way, uh, called Boomerang, you know, to reference uh, the. Oh, yeah, kids, he did. Kids, I haven't kids read are like that boomerangs. one. Yeah, yeah. So I've read oh, all of his books. Right. Okay. But he said, and you quoted him in your book too, and let me, I wrote this down here. He said, uh, I was 11 when my father sat me down for the quote unquote talk. My father never did actually explain how sex worked. I think he thought a person just naturally figured that out. Money was different. Money was something <laughs> that needed explaining. And that's really the crux of it, right? And and uh, yeah. it, it, and one of the themes that I, I really appreciate running through your book is that a lot of this stuff, it's not rocket science. I but know. it takes discipline and consistency. And like we said already, the power of habit. And you laid out pretty clearly in there that there's really only five things or I think you call them pillars that you yes, can do with money, right. right? You can, once you earn it, which is the first pillar, obviously, mm -hmm. you can either save it or spend it or share it or invest it. Exactly. Like he said, I mean, a lot of this is kind of common sense, right? It's not like, you know, saving lives or, or you know, the kind of work that you do as a, as a doctor. But in many ways, it's, it's, so crucial for survival, but I tried to structure the book in a in a unique way that would help parents. Um, and so I was I, when I came up with it, I was like, well, any topic, any financial topic is going to fall under one of these five pillars of yeah. earn, save, spend, share, and invest. But the specific topics and examples are going to be different for different stages of your child's life. So just like your kids have different health milestones as they as they grow up, kind of similar with financial stuff, that there's things that they really need to know. So that's why I broke the chapters up as I did into young kids, preteens, teens, and emerging adults. And then within each of those chapters, I have specific stuff that's age appropriate that you can talk about with your kids, you know, under one of those five topics. So that was to help parents who felt like, oh my God, I don't know where to start. I don't know what to talk about. Uh, I don't have the knowledge. And in terms of the time, I, I try to, to tell parents to look for teachable moments, opportunities to build a money lesson as you go about your day-to-day -day lives. Yeah. Yeah. Those are you and you have some great examples in your book around that, just buying groceries, you know, a cup of coffee, paying utility bills at home and so on, just everyday mundane things and, and being open and transparent so that these things mm -hmm. don't arrive as a complete and utter mystery when kids are 22 years old and trying to figure it out on their own. That's the thing. If you haven't shown them, especially let's take credit cards as an example, because they they will get bombarded with credit card ads. Let's say if they go to university or college and if they haven't been taught like how a credit card works and how it's different from a de debit card and how the billing cycle works and minimum payments and interest and all that stuff, they can get into trouble pretty fast with their first credit card. So just sitting down with them, explaining those things, like just, just taking a few minutes in your life to explain what you're doing and answer any questions that they have. It doesn't have to be boring or a lecture. I had to chuckle uh, last week when I was uh, uh, making my way through your book again, just uh, in preparation for our chat today. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was, uh, I'd been reading in one of the newspapers earlier a news item about a gentleman in Ottawa, I think, so up the road or mm -hmm. down up the road up the road from you 
Um, uh, a little east of here. Well, east <laughs> east of the, down the road. East of us in Toronto, uh, yeah. In any case, so I, I was thinking of your five pillars, you know, earn it, save it, spend it, share it, invest it. And I thought, I think there's a sixth pillar based on how this guy behaved in the sense that he took a million dollars and burned it. So you could also burn it, I what? suppose. <laughs> he burned a million dollars to keep it away <laughs> from his ex-wife because they were engaged in a rather bitter divorce. And so, you know, to your comment he about- He burned cash? He burned, well, according to, he, he told the judge in the case that he oh. burned a million dollars. I think the judge isn't buying okay. any of it. Uh, and, I and wouldn't re- recommend that as one of the pillars, no. No, I know, but the reason <laughs> I bring that up, one. the reason I bring that up is because <laughs> it's because of your comment on credit card debt and how destructive not paying off your credit cards in full every month can be. When you're looking at a 22% mm-hmm. interest charge on balances right. you carry, it's astounding how many people carry credit card balances. Yes. Uh it, it's true. And, um, you know, they have tricky little ways of just getting you to make the minimum payment. And it doesn't, it's not always obvious just the way they create the statement and the payment options, but, you know, try to pay off the full balance every month because yeah, at 22%, the interest is going to snowball so quickly and powerful to share with your kids is the statement on the card, the, on the, you know, the the monthly statement that tells you how many years and months it would take to pay off the balance. If you only make the minimum payment, because it's pretty shocking how, you know, how long that actually is and how expensive it can be to buy something that you can't afford. When you and add all the interest. And, and they'll draw you in. Um, from my understanding, they'll even offer a payment holiday from time to time to give you mm-hmm. a break from. So this month mm-hmm. you get a payment holiday and that interest clock just keeps on running and calculating. And it really is like burning money. So, you know, and, yeah. and, to, and to your point, it, it went because we had a our oldest just started in university in Montreal uh, last year. She just came home after her first year away. And we went mm-hmm. with her to Montreal to get her settled. And they have all of these introductory booths and so on. You walk up and down these booths. I think the yes. banks were so overrepresented uh, amongst all the different booths trying to get kids acclimated to their new surroundings and their new city and new university. Every major bank was there and a few other secondary lenders in there, all advertising credit cards. It's amazing, really, how uh, they draw them in. I know. I'm not, I'm not surprised. And a lot. A lot of times, like, let's say, you know, when your kids, your daughter, when they're teenagers, you may give them a supplementary card on the family card just for emergencies or to buy gas if you're paying for gas or what, whatever the reason. Often they have that supplementary card, but they're spending your money. They're not seeing the credit card statements unless you show them. They're not paying the bill. So if and then once they reach the age of majority and they can get their own card, this might be the very first time that, the, as I said, that they're paying it, that they understand like when it's due and how much to pay. And it's just so important that you walk them through that because, you know, they are going to be bombarded. Keep that credit limit really low on the first card. Like if you can do a thousand, it's enough for them to buy some supplies or books or whatever, but it's not so bad that they can get into trouble. And that money's all digital, you know, and you make some references in your latest book uh, regarding... Yes you know, the digital currency. And I think that's why, you know, if you go through the different stages, as you've laid them out, the five to eight group, you actually advocate for using cold, hard cash to teach kids the value of money and the proverbial piggy bank, you know, and this is, you know, the title of this podcast is the risk of piggy banks, not because I think piggy banks are risky, but, you know, you use a piggy bank in your book. 
I, I just, you know, the reason for that title is piggy banks alone <laughs> are not adequate financial strategy for success. Um, but I think no. you actually, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't you actually find a five slotted piggy bank to I represent did. I'll show each of your, you. yeah. Yeah. So for our oh, listeners. It matches my shirt. Oh yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> I see. Yeah. So it's got, it's got five slots for each of those things. That's, that's really cool. You four found slots. That, four. Oh, four. Yeah. Right. So not the right. One, Save, obviously. spend, donate, yeah. invest. It's yeah, the earning. Enough. Yeah. Obviously for sure. And you found yes, that on, uh, that. where did you find that piggy bank? So um, there, I, I got this one for Mastermind Toys, but if you go to my website, robintobes.com under further resources, we have a link to where you can find it. It's made by a company called Money Savvy Generation, but it is perfect for young kids because digital money, tapping, debit card, it's too conceptual. It's too hard for them to understand what money is unless you start with cash and coins and bills. And a multi-slotted piggy bank really makes those those pillars, those choices around money, once you've earned it, real. Makes it real. And yeah. obviously, yeah, there is risk, especially when inflation is running at like 4 or 5% to leaving your money in a piggy bank. I have it at the bank where it can earn some interest. But again, they're too young to understand that. I don't. I, I think I suggest talking about interest and compound interest once they're preteens and teenagers. Yeah, so I think uh, you advocate for kids by the time they're 11 or 12 to have transitioned from piggy banks to a real bank so they get accustomed to, to, having, account. That's right. to having an account that they can use and then when they're a bit older uh, and, and and just to stop there for a minute uh, so for the preteens, so like the 9 to 12 they may start having mm -hmm. jobs like a paper route or babysitting job or shoveling snow mowing grass um, and yes. that money that money can be deposited in a bank account they don't they won't earn particularly you know, until recently, it wouldn't have earned much interest at all, but at least they earn some interest and you can begin to explain that concept to them, the concept that money left untouched actually can grow. Yes. So you're right. Youth accounts generally pay very low interest rates, even in this environment where rates are fairly high. They won't pay a lot because there's also no fees on those accounts usually. Right. But it's but teaching them the principle. Yeah, exactly. That's the whole idea of having your money in the bank. It's safer. Uh, it's more secure than carrying around cash. And eventually, um, like can lock, even for a young kid, if they have a lot in their youth account, you could put it into maybe a, a GIC, Guaranteed Investment Certificate. And yeah. that, because it's locked in, it will earn some interest. And then you can start explaining to them, you know, why that's important or how a bank works. And then when they get a bit older and they start getting actual paychecks, then you can sit with them and uh, discuss with them the reality that what they earn isn't necessarily what they take home because of the various deductions that you and I are intimately familiar with, CPP or pension plan deductions and employment insurance. And then taxes, of course, if they earn enough. Now, not many of our young teenagers are going to earn enough money to I, I wish we were in that position where I could tell you that my 16-year-old had to pay a $55,000 tax bill last year, but she did not. <laughs> but if they somehow there is some tax or other things withheld um, and they are entitled to a refund, the only way to get that refund is by filing a tax return. So again, um, another teachable moment is to sit down with them and help them file their taxes. I mean, I think using online software is the best and easiest way to do that, especially for young people. Uh, it's often even free. So it's a really good teachable it is, moment. It, yeah, it is actually free. Yeah, earning. 
I can tell you because I we just did this with yeah. our 16, 18 year old this year again, and we used a company called Wealth Simple, and mm-hmm. it was simple as the name might suggest. Simple and free. And yes. and what people often don't realize is that simply by filing the tax return, they actually will uh, realize somewhat of a refund, even if it's a GST refund. So it may yes. be a small amount of money, and they may not have earned very much money, but they also already create RRSP room that they can use. That's right. If if they have employment income. Um, and again, filing, like you're in Alberta, I'm in, I'm in Ontario, there's different provincial refundable tax credits things they're entitled to so if if they've got some income it's definitely a good idea to totally file awesome. even if yeah. tax was withheld because you never know you might get some back yeah and it's sure. a good habit again it's a good habit to get into yeah a good habit and 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 that's also the age i guess that which you suggest we begin to introduce the fantastic concept of uh compound interest the example you use at one point in your book is what happens to five dollars a week if you save five dollars a week every week until you're 65 grow and watch it grow from the age of 15 until 65 that five dollars a week grows into now correct me if i'm wrong you might not remember exactly the number i think it's 57 i gotta pull it up i think i did the math um yesterday just to see for my own interest so that grows to fifty-seven thousand dollars from a from a from the amount contributed in real dollars of only thirteen thousand dollars roughly i'm rounding it off obviously Whereas yeah, if, you, if you start the same habit, but you wait 10 years, the amount is dramatically reduced. And yeah, you know, I, I use the example to just encourage young people to save early, like start early. You know, if you can save $5 a week at 15 and instead of waiting until you're 20 or 25 and save often, like if you can do it regularly, like every week or every month, it's really powerful because you have time on your side. Yeah. Who, who was it? I, what was that phrase? Was it Einstein? Who said yeah. it's, it's Einstein? The, yeah, the power it's of the eighth or, wonder of the world. Yeah, compound interest or something like that is the eighth wonder of the world. Yeah, yeah. He says it's something like those who understand it earn it, those who don't pay it. So yeah. introducing your kids to that young, and then you know, the flip side of that is if you like we were saying with credit cards, if you owe money, if yeah. you have debt and there's especially if there's a high rate of interest on it, like consumer debt and credit cards, then it will work just as hard against you. Yeah, that even, item even that hard. you purchased that you couldn't yeah. afford in full is going to is gonna cost you a lot. And then, you know, there's the explosion of these BNPL, these buy now, pay later app. So many ways to get you to spend, spend, spend. Yeah. And, you know, the final section of your book on emerging adults. Now, obviously, our show mm-hmm. isn't targeting people over 18 technically as pediatric guys, but still, you know, when I read through sort of that transition phase, I thought because we're having and have had the same conversation at our house about the importance of the first pillar, the, you know, the earning the money in the first place. And, you know, in order to earn that money in the first place, you have to find work that generates that income, whether you're an entrepreneur, you create your own business, or whether you have a salary position somewhere. And one of the things that I think we don't do a great job of in this country is vocational assessment, career exploration before our kids head off to university, for example, or to a technical school. And too many of our kids flounder around for two or three or four years as adults very expensively 
only to find out that's not the right path for them. And so if you're going to invest in your children, part of that investment is doing the heavy lifting when they're, even when they're 13, 14, 15, 16, figure out where their aptitudes lie and where their interests lie. Um, so that when they do get into that real earning phase of their life, they're doing work that is meaningful and productive and generates income. That's so true. I mean, in Ontario, I don't think they get they get some guidance from the guidance counselors, but very, very little. And I think it's just another job that falls to the parents, like financial education, sex education, that you have to sit down with your kids and or send them, maybe you have to do some, you know, third party vocational testing to figure out what is going to be a fulfilling and a good match of their strengths and their interests and what the market is, you know, demands. It's not easy. It's certainly a hard decision to make, like when you're 16 or 17, and you're, you're still figuring yourself out. And it is actually, I wonder if other countries do it better, because well, they do you know, in in, like- in, uh, in Scandinavian countries, they do a far better job of this. So one of my daughters yeah. a couple of years ago in school did a research project on the educational system in Finland. And first of Whoa. all, like I know in Canada, we've done a better job in recent years of introducing financial literacy classes into schools. Right. But to be honest, at least from my perspective, still not great. And, and right. as a standalone, it has to be supplemented by parental involvement. 100 percent so they do yes. a better they do a better job there of real financial literacy training or education mm-hmm. and then they do vocational training very early on and then they set students at a much earlier age on a track that is well suited to their aptitudes and that sort of thing so we yeah. could we, we could and we should learn from them from that you know, you know as, far, as far as the financial education you know when i was discussing this with my wife a couple of days ago i said it reminds me to some degree of you know, as a Western Canadian, I grew up. I grew up uh, just outside of Vancouver in a small town called uh, Chilliwack. We had French mm-hmm. education back in the day too. When I was a kid, I can tell you how much French I speak today. I think I left with equipped with vous regardez la télé or something like that, and that's about the extent of it. Whereas my children uh, have been in French immersion since preschool; they are fluent in French and. You know, I, I wish we could do mm-hmm. the same thing with this extremely important topic of learning how to use money, the power of money to create quality lives and therefore better health outcomes. If we could immerse children from a very early age, just like we do yeah. with language immersion, because this is part of the language of life. It's a basic life skill. So it's yeah. like having language skills or math skills, and it is partially math based, but it really is. You need this. And ideally, if you start learning it very young, it just becomes kind of natural or second nature. One of the ways in which uh, I think at least that it's effective to draw children and teenagers into the world of money is to make it fun, obviously. And so, yeah, again, one of the things I like that you do in your book is make reference to simple board games like, you know, the age old monopoly and uh, the game of life. Um, And then, you know, we'll just uh, finish this up here with a couple of other points. And one of which Mm -hmm. is that I I really appreciated the fact that you emphasize that we derive as human beings more pleasure when we do spend our hard-earned cash. We derive more pleasure from buying experiences than from Mm -hmm. buying stuff. 
So investing in experiences rather than things, key principles. Love the fact that you highlighted that. And I love the fact that you highlighted gratitude uh, as, as um, as a basic principle. And finally, how you emphasize sharing as a general right. principle as you go along that you take from what you have earned and what you've acquired and you share it and there's a proverb i have no idea where it came from but i use it sometimes and you've probably heard it before that money is like manure if you pile it up it just starts to smell but if you spread it around mm-hmm. it's like fertilizer i like that i don't think i've heard that proverb but i really like that but because that's we, very we, true. Because we have such a tendency as humans, particularly if you're doing, quote unquote, if you're doing well, to pile our money into various accounts, investment accounts, save for retirement, but far beyond what we could possibly ever need, uh, with the idea that somehow we'll pass it off to our kids, which is a nice segue into how I want to finish up here. Is it better to give our children fish or is it better to teach them to fish? Okay, so my answer to that, and this is in my keynote speech, is because I'm an accountant by training, I like to say, do your kids taxes for them, and they'll be coming back every year. Teach your kids to do their taxes, and they'll be filing on their own forever. Yeah. So I am a big advocate of teaching your kids to fish. That's not to say that you can't help them out. You can't give them a little bait or a new fishing rod or yeah. whatever, however you want to stretch this metaphor. But there are going to be times in, in their lives where they're going to need a little help. And that's okay if you can afford to and you want to. But generally speaking, I think it's always better. I mean, it might be quicker and easier in the moment just to do it for them. But I think it's always better to take the time to make the wisest investment. It can be a and challenge. Yeah, it can be a challenge for sure. Uh, there's a business guy that I follow named Scott Galloway. He's a professor at New York mm-hmm. University. Yeah, I know who uh, he is. Yeah, so he has a podcast, a Prof G podcast, and he has a newsletter that I read, and he's a very insightful guy. And uh, he did a show not that long ago exploring just this topic, and his short answer was, I don't know. His short mm-hmm. answer was, essentially, then he fleshed it out a bit and said that he wouldn't be where he is today. He's a very wealthy man. If he had not had to struggle mightily when he was a young guy, he was not given anything and right. had to figure it out. He had a lot of failure along the way. And because of those experiences and because he yeah. had to figure it out, uh, he learned how to fish and he's doing well. And however, now he is endowed with many millions of dollars. He's got a couple of kids. He said, there's no way as a parent that I'm not going to use some of that largesse to help my kids out a little bit. So there's a balance there somewhere. I think it's different for everyone. But I think Mm -hmm. perhaps the best way to leave that topic is to say that probably not healthy just to give your kids a whole schwack of money and expect them to thrive in their lives as a holistic human being, you know, rather than learning how to earn earn their way through their lives themselves. Yeah, I mean, money can certainly smooth things over and ease away, but it can prevent young people from finding purpose and meaning in their lives. And I think most of us want to raise kids with a sense of purpose, not a sense of entitlement and kids who are happy and healthy and successful uh, and have fulfilling lives. So I think, especially if you transfer significant money during their career building years, that's not going to help with that. Yeah, that's for sure. And so that's very well said and a great way to, uh, to wrap this up. So the book is, 
The book is The Wisest Investment, Teaching Your Kids to Be Responsible, Independent, and Money Smart for Life by yourself, Robin Tobe. Now, you mentioned you have a website as well. Yes. What's the website? Yes. So the, the book site is thewisestinvestment.com. Probably the easiest one to re- uh, remember. And that, that has links to where you can buy it on Amazon. I also have, uh, there's a financial role model self-assessment tool on that website, which may be useful to your listeners to kind of just start thinking about what kind of role model they are and the kind that they can be. And then I do have another website, robintobe.com, Robin with an I, T-A-U-B. And that just has more information on speaking and a different self-assessment tool. So people may be interested in checking that out as well. That's great. Thank you so much. And thank you again for joining us today. Just awesome. Thanks, Ed. That was fun. I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. That was the talented Robin Tobe. Back in a moment with Listener Mailbag. Okay, so we're back with this episode's edition of the Listener Mailbag. We had uh, quite a bit of feedback with regard to our cannabis episode, so we'll highlight a few of them here. A listener named Catherine, a parent of two teenage boys, wrote in to say, You guys talked a lot about the potential harms to teenagers of smoking pot, but the fact is that it's legalized and normalized. So it's a done deal. What can be done now that it's a done deal? I hope we talked to that uh, during the course of our episode with respect to how to talk to our teenagers and how to deal with the reality that they're going, some of them at least are going to experiment uh, with pot. And, you know, I think the transparency bit that we emphasized is really key with regard to what our own experiences have been and then what the dangers are of modern day pot are. Absolutely. So all of those things are, are key, but you know, Canada is a democracy and democracy isn't perfect. And it's, it's uh, what's the, Best of the With, worst. Well, it's the best of the worst, or it's a bit like sausage making, get, yeah. getting things done. And so this thing happened and it's legalized. We talked a bit in the episode about Portugal, how Portugal took a bit of a different approach. They decriminalized rather than legalized, and they joined that to a really robust public health education program. We don't yet have that in Canada, but that doesn't mean that that can't happen. And I really think it's incumbent upon us as citizens in a democracy to make our voices heard. So Talk to your MLA, talk to your MP, you know, get busy on school boards, talk to people, start the conversation, be part of the conversation, and let's really all collectively try to pull together to bring that public health education to the fore. Yeah. All right. And then, Phil, there's another message here from a fellow named Jonathan. Right. And Jonathan says, my sister and her husband used cannabis recreationally, just had their first baby. She didn't use during her pregnancy, but the baby's born and she's using a bit now, but she's breastfeeding. Is that okay? Um, I mean, generally as doctors, first question I ask is, well, is it expressed in the breast milk? Because if it isn't, then, you know, it's maybe not as relevant. Um, In this case, it is expressed in the breast milk, you know, and, and I think I can refer people to, you can get, you know, some of the most rigorous scientific data comes out of places like the CDC. So you can look for yourself, but generally they would say, yes, it's expressed in the breast milk. As we said in the podcast, it's, you know, on a teenage developing brain, that's where the concern is. 
So, you know, logically common sense would say you couldn't ask for more of a developing brain than a newborn baby. So I think you're pairing up that, yes, it's expressed, and yes, that baby is getting it to some degree. Is there definitive evidence to say that that's damaging, especially if they say it's just here and now? It's hard to say. I suspect less is more in, in the case of this, and it's probably uh, not a great choice. But I, I encourage people to go look it up and 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 see what, what the best sources say. See, one, one of the Achilles heels we have sometimes in medicine is we like to talk about randomized controlled clinical trials, as if that's the holy grail. And we're reluctant sometimes to move forward unless we have evidence from an RCT, from a randomized to a fault. trial. To a fault, right? Yes. So nobody in the world is going to randomize two groups of babies. No. We're going to take 1,000 newborn babies and randomize them to essentially pot exposure and a thousand not, and then mine the data and come up with a robust conclusion. So obviously we're not going to do that. And I think this is one of those issues where we have to fall back on good old common sense. We do know from teenagers and older people what the effects are on their frontal lobes. The ergo, you can extrapolate, I think, pretty safely that it's going to impact babies as well. Yeah, agreed. And then we've got a teenager. We don't hear from any teenagers yet. I hope we get more teenagers listening to our podcast, a fellow named James. He said, I've heard conflicting things about how long you have to wait after using cannabis before it's safe to drive. Can you guys provide some guidance? Uh, to which I say, I wish I could provide absolutely certain data. The short answer is nobody really knows. The best evidence we have is best to wait probably at least four to five hours after inhaling or smoking or vaping cannabis. Again, you know, there's a depends uh, aspect to that in the sense that it depends how hard you've gone at it, how much pot you've used, and also how long you've been using pot, how habituated you are. So there's a lot of confounders, but, the, you know, the best evidence that we have so far, and it's not great, is at least four to five hours and probably double it if it's edible, says Dr. Urema in our interview, pointed out the concentration of cannabis in edibles is quite a bit higher and the absorption, and therefore the blood levels is way more unpredictable. So best to double it. And then, you know, so I read a bit around this question after I saw James's query on this, and I found some references that said, really, you know, if you really want to be on the safe side, and it's not just about getting caught by the cops, whatever, right. and getting a fine, losing your license, and taking your already ridiculous insurance rates and watch them go through the roof or become uninsurable or whatever. What this really is about is safety, right? You don't want to get hurt yourself. You don't want to get killed yourself. And you sure don't want to hurt anybody else or worse, right? So what this is, is about is safety. If you're going to experiment with pot, whatever form you use, if you can find some way just to stay away from operating a motor vehicle, even for 24 hours, you know, get a ride, take an Uber, yeah. stay home, whatever. That just seems like a really sensible way to approach this topic. I love that. And I think, you know, like I say to my kids, and James, you could do the same thing with your There's a really easy way to get home. You have a designated driver, and they don't drink a thing. And it rotates through the group. So yep. then you know, 100%. There's none of this judging. Because, you know, at, at the top end of smoking, you know, the marijuana or taking edibles or drinking is you're impaired. And now you're impaired trying to make a rational, conscious decision about how impaired am I? Yeah. So I'm like, it's easy. This is what my buddies, when we used to, you know, when we were teenagers, he had a designated driver. He did not have a single drink. It yeah. was his night of boredom. Hopefully it matched up because he had to work the earliest the next morning. So he was happy to say, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll take it for the team tonight. 
and you rotate through the group. Yeah, and 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 I would say you know one thing that's a bit unique with cannabis when you're using cannabis, um, it's it's a bit of an odd thing. You can be using cannabis and then think to yourself, well, I must have gotten a bad batch because I'm not really stoned. You think for a while that you know I'm just stone cold, so-called sober, not high. When in fact you're flying high. It's a really yeah. Two hours go by and yeah, you didn't realize it. You're impaired. It's a really perception distorting drug. The bottom line is, you're using it. You've got to make different arrangements than yourself getting behind a wheel of a car. And that's where parents, like we said in the podcast too, that's where parents say, no matter what time it is, whatever, I will come. In this day of hopefully Uber in your community, you get an Uber, you get a cab. I tell my kids, you sleep over at that house. You whatever we'll go to the ends of the earth to get you home safely. Don't do it. Don't get, don't get in that vehicle. Awesome. So that's a wrap for today. Thank you, Phil, and uh, thank you again to Dr. Robin Tobe. There's a lot of topics on the drawing board. Those uh, ones I mentioned at the end of the last podcast and at the top of today's show that we didn't quite get to yet. I like how we left it last time. In order to find out what we're going to talk about with the next episode, I guess you'll just have to tune in. So thank you all for listening, and we'll see you again with our next episode. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to Cloudy with the Risk of Children, hosted by emergency physicians Dr. Edward Less and Dr. Phil Ukrainitz. A full transcript of today's episode can be found at riskofkids.substack.com. We'd love some feedback. Send us your comments or ideas you'd like to see us explore on future shows. You can reach us at feedback at riskofkids.com. That's feedback at riskofkids.com. Most episodes of Cloudy with the Risk of Children feature a listener mailbag where we respond to some of the feedback we've received. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Your input helps us make the show even better, points us to topics that are relevant to you, and helps us reach new listeners. Again, thank you for listening, and we hope you tune in next time. Until then, remember, kids are like boomerangs. They're wonderful to hold, but they're meant to fly. The views expressed on this show should not be taken or construed as personal medical advice. For individual medical opinions, please consult your own doctor. Cloudy with the Risk of Children is a Studio D podcast production.